authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not even put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if in any place will not, and if, sorry, and if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. If you're comfortable, you can actually, I've read out of the ESV, I feel like I'm a bit too loud here. Can you just turn me down a little? Because I want to talk louder. And I do, I talk loud. It's just the way I am. I work in construction, so you, you, you're generally shouting above equipment all the time. You can actually scratch the word against out. That word against doesn't even exist in the original text, but in most of our English translations, we put the word against there as a testimony against them. And um, the, 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 the actual Hebraic understanding is a testimony to them. That's what it is. Uh, now, I'm not going to preach on that text, but just suffice to say, why are you asking us to scratch out the word against? Well, number one, it doesn't exist. And number two, if you understand the Hebraic culture, a rabbi would walk in front and he would have his star pupil, his star disciple behind him, and they would all stand in a line, um, which is to stand in one accord. And as he walks, the, the, when they went into a town, if you were covered in dust, they, they, the more dust you had on you, they would, you the, the more blessed you were because they realized that you were, you were covered in the, in the dust of, of your rabbi because you were the one who walked closest to him. And so having the dust from the feet of a, of a rabbi on you was actually a blessing. And so when, when Jesus says to them, if they're not going to receive you in that town, you know, just even, even shake off just a little bit of the dust from your feet as a testimony to them. Like Jesus never leaves us without something because he loves us. It's not a matter of if I come to you and, I, and, and you do not receive me, get, get lost. That's how we read it. Oh, we'll just shake off the dust as a testimony. We're not coming back here. We scorn you. That, that's how we read that text. But it's actually not true. The text is, at least leave a little bit of blessing with them. Side note. Now, what I want to say is, when I read through the scriptures, this is probably the first time that I saw the first commission of Jesus. The, the first commission of Jesus was actually this, was to go into a town. It, it's not, we read Matthew 28 as the great commission, you know, go out into all the world and, you know, make disciples of all nations. And the reason why that becomes our text of the, of the season for the, the great commission, and it's actually dubbed, if you look at it, it's a head title that was put there by man that says the great commission. Who knows that when these were written, there were no subtitles. There were no numbers. You're actually supposed to read it as one long, one, one letter, one record. Uh, but we put these little subtitles there, and they were generally put there by Reformed theologians because the ESV is um, predominantly Reformed. And the reason why is because the God story, as I always say in our, in our view, is that the God story always started in Genesis chapter 3, where man, and, where man and woman fell. And so the redemption story is actually that man and woman are redeemed by Jesus. He pays for our sins, right? So that's the gospel. But that isn't the gospel. The gospel is actually starts in number one, in Genesis chapter one. God created everything good and placed man, man and woman in, in control of all of the earth. And their job, our job was to take that glory of God and that kingdom of God, that rulership and government of God and spread it across the nations. And then we messed it up. And so when Jesus came back to restore it, he didn't come back just to rescue us from hell. He came back to restore what was originally lost. Luke chapter 9 speaks of this. He says that he came to seek and to save, and our ESV, my ESV Bible says to seek and to save the lost. And a lot of Bibles will say he came to seek and to save the lost. But the true translation, he came to seek and save that which was lost. So what was lost? God's governmental rulership through mankind on the earth. Did God ever cease to be God sovereign over all things? No. He never, God never ceases to be sovereign. However, we need to understand what sovereignty is. Hyper-sovereignty is that God uses every one of us as a chess piece on a board. Everything that happens in your life is because God ordained it to happen. That's hyper-sovereignty. True sovereignty is that God sits as governmental ruler over all of time and space, of all of eternity, of everything that is created and everything that we cannot yet see, which is in eternity. Okay, God sits as a government over that. However, he placed 
the earth in subjection to man and gave us free will to make your own decisions. That's why the, that's why the tree was in the garden. If God was, if we believe in hyper sovereignty, then God orchestrated that Adam and Eve sinned, making God the author of sin. Can God be the author of sin? No, then that theory is out of the window. Hyper-sovereignty cannot exist if we do not believe that God is the author of sin. If we believe in hyper-sovereignty, God is the author of sin because he orchestrated and chess-pieced Adam and Eve like pawns to go and force them because he's taken control of their will because they didn't have free will to eat from the tree so that all this destruction we see can exist and for some reason... God can then send Jesus. That was never the plan. Jesus was never the plan. Plan A was Adam and Eve. So Mark chapter 6 is the first commission that we actually see Jesus give to his disciples. I'm trying to find where I am in my notes because I've already covered quite a bit of it. <laughs> So if Jesus comes to redeem us, put it that way, if he comes to redeem and save and seek and save that which was lost, then it becomes our task not only to teach, and when I mean our task, I'm not just talking about those who preach from the pulpit, but, but you as disciples are those who teach others. You teach the world. You teach those around you. It becomes our task not only to teach people about the beating and the death and the blood of Christ, but it also progresses to teaching about his life on earth, how he lived and modeled out sonship, and about his resurrection from the dead. The key element being his resurrection from the dead. About justification, about his transference of mankind from being outside of the kingdom into being in the kingdom, under his government and rulership. In Acts chapter 2, if you want to just quickly flick across there, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. I love the fact that he's just clarified that Jesus is a man. That, that is key for us. Just, let me just stop there for a moment. In, in this, it's key that we understand Jesus as a man. When Jesus... When, when God the Son, let me put it that way, when God the Son left his eternal place to enter into time and space, the temporal realm, this realm in which we currently live now, the earth, he laid aside his deity. He laid aside his divinity. He laid aside his ability to operate as God, to take on and subject himself in the form of a man, to become fully reliant on the Holy Spirit who was manifesting his Father's kingdom through him. That's a, that's a model of us. Jesus did not operate on earth. Hear me. He did not operate on earth in his divine abilities. He operated on earth in his humanity. Fully reliant. I do nothing except I see my Father doing and I say nothing except my Father has told me. Those are, those are big statements. I mean, we can all say we don't do that comfortably, yeah, with no shame. Like that's, that is something that we fail at hopelessly every day. However, that is the model of sonship. When you put Jesus on earth in his divine abilities, he takes away the ability for us to walk as disciples of him and mimic his life. It then becomes impossible for, for Jesus to have said to us, what you have seen me do, you will also do. Even greater things than what I have done, you shall do. What an impossibility if we need to step into a divine nature. So we have to do it in subjection to the Holy Spirit. However, in Scripture it says that we get to partake of His divine nature. Now I'm going to throw a little something out there. In John, Jesus speaks about, He says to them, um, He says, No one has entered into heaven... I'm just sorry, I'm, I'm not looking at you because I'm thinking about the text. He, he said, no one has entered into heaven except to him who has descended from heaven, 
the Son of Man who is in heaven, is the true meaning of that. While he's speaking, he is speaking to some disciples. Or actually, he's speaking to some Pharisees. He says, no one has descended into heaven except, sorry, no one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man who is in heaven. Jesus is actually saying, right now, I'm standing here on earth talking to you. However, I am yet still in heaven, in spirit. Now, we've entered into Christ. So right now, the mystery, one of the mysteries is this, that you, as you sit here in your fleshly state, are actually in spiritual state in heaven, in Christ, seated inside of Jesus. That's a mystery that I, I think... 99% 99% of the church doesn't un- understand. Because if we did understand it, I think we would see things very, very differently. It's almost like using, we use 10% of our brains. If we were able to use 90% of our brains, we'd be able to, I'd be able to lift that chair up and move it to another location in the room and probably um, move myself around this room without walking. That's what would happen in the physical if I could do that. Now you imagine in the spiritual, we use probably 10% of our spiritual ability. You know, you see somebody share a word of knowledge and call someone's mobile telephone number out in the address and we are blown away. That's probably 10% of our spiritual ability. If we were to operate in just 50% of our spiritual ability, every single person we touched, we would bring into the realm of God's kingdom and we'd see instantaneous healing and deliverance instantaneously every single time without fail because that's what Jesus did. Jesus never touched anyone and that person was not healed. Not, not one person. There's no evidence in Scripture where Jesus failed at healing somebody. doesn't matter what it was, spiritually, demonic oppression, or possession, physical ailments. Not one person that Jesus talked to, spoke to, or even spoke about even when he was not there. So he speaks to Jairus' um, daughter, and she's not even where he is, and bang, she gets healed. The servant, sorry, the servant. Not Jairus' daughter, sorry, the servant. The... Um, the Roman centurion servant. There you go. He speaks, and the person's healed somewhere else. That's because Jesus, in his spirit, knew that he was not where he was. He was somewhere else. I don't even know why I got onto that. Maybe that's what someone needs to hear today. So let's carry on here. This is my problem with when I preach. I go down rabbit trails. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, a man attested to you. Sorry, I'm leaning here because I need to see, and I might need to lend Ben's glasses to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption or decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his flesh, his flesh, physical flesh, physical flesh, see corruption or decay, the word is. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. See, most of us are witnesses of the fact that Jesus died for the sin of the world. But the apostles were witnesses of the fact that Jesus was raised back to life again. And that whole text I've just read now is Peter standing up and having a word with them saying, David, who God said he had put his son on the throne, died, and I can take you to the tomb and show you his bones there. But God spoke about this Jesus, the Messiah, that his body, his fleshly body, wouldn't see corruption. And so... We are witnesses that Jesus has actually raised from the dead, not spiritually, but also physically. Like right now in heaven, you need to understand something. In the eternal realm, Jesus sits in a physical form. His body, his physical body is, 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 is there. As a man, he has been raised back to life and seated on the throne, making him the Messiah. Now, you hear me say this all the time. And the reason why I keep saying it is because, yes, we are leading up to something where next year, 
um, Ben has spoken to me about doing a series on what is the gospel. And I'll take you through, through a series of texts showing you what exactly is this gospel we're presenting. Because when our gospel that we present is simply about the fact that you fell, Jesus came and paid for your sins, we've, we've actually lessened the gospel. What we are preaching is the message of salvation, which fits into the overall gospel. The gospel is Jesus. He is the good news. But what is so good about him? That he is seated on the throne. That his kingdom is established for all of eternity. And the reason why we can say that is because people witnessed the fact that he came back to life again. If he never came back to life, no Messiah. He was a good man who died on a cross. Just like others. Peter was a good man. He also got hung upside down on a cross. All the disciples were good people. Now if you or me could die for our own sins because we lived a righteous life, we would be able to die for your sin and your sin alone. But because Jesus is who he is, he was able to die for the sin of everybody. However, he was raised back to life again. Now the key element is that Jesus, if he died, was able to pay for your sins, which he did do by his own blood. But it doesn't make him the Messiah unless he was raised back to life. Do you understand that? It is something you have to grasp. When you read the text, when you read the scriptures, begin to do this, because I started doing it, and I started writing, I colored it in yellow in my Bible. There you go, yellow. Every time I saw in scripture where they presented the gospel, I colored it, I highlighted it in yellow. And what you will find as you read through Matthew, Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, are accounts of the gospel, Jesus. But when you look through the book of Acts, and when you look through all the letters that the, apostle, the, the apostles actually wrote, and you highlight in yellow, what you will find is their declaration in there, their main declaration is actually the fact that he was raised back to life. Paul uses words like this, more than that, who was raised back to life. Jesus Christ, who died, more than that, was raised to life. Look for that when you read it. I guarantee you your eyes will open and the presentation of how you present that good news will completely change. Because our task no longer is about telling people that their sins are forgiven. But we have a task now of actually bringing redemption. Because there is a kingdom that is established with a king that sits on the throne and we are sons and daughters of, of, of the same father as Jesus, it makes us co-sons with Christ, but it also makes us ambassadors of him as a king. And an ambassador is not somebody that we understand today who sits. So the ambassador for Australia to the United Kingdom will sit in the United Kingdom, right? And, and they will sit there, but they do not have the same authority and power that we would understand the ambassadors that the Bible speaks about. The ambassadors that the Bible speaks about have the authority to make a decision and a judgment based on the fact that they, when they make a call, they are making a call as if they were. So the Roman, a Roman ambassador, Pontius Pilate was one of them in Jerusalem, Pontius Pilate in Galilee and around the Jewish um, neighborhoods in, in Israel effectively, sat there. When he made a call, remember there was no telephones, there was no emails, there was nothing that he could quickly write back and go to, to Caesar in, in Rome. Hey, I'm having an issue over here. What do I do? I'll make this decision. These are the rules we have. No problem. What he would do is standing in Jerusalem, he would make a decision. And if he made a decision and a declaration, it was as if Caesar himself had made it. And it had to be followed or else, or else you die. It had to be obeyed. And he had the ability to decide between life and death. Now, God has placed us as that kind of ambassador. To call into being anything that we so wish based on the fact that we know that the headquarters over here, the decision we're making there is in line with the headquarters. So we understand, as I spoke a few weeks ago, the justice system of God can be established by us here, which no sickness and diseases in heaven. So we can make a declaration here and should see from what I can understand, sickness and disease goes. Poverty is broken. Well, poverty is not just broken by prayer, but poverty is broken by action. Remember, I spoke about faith without works is dead because faith itself is, is a trust and a belief in God that implicates an action based on that trust and belief. So therefore, you, you, a man cannot say, I have faith that God will destroy poverty, but never take out money out of their pocket to give to the poor. 
That, that's not faith. Well, I'll pray for it. Well, that, fair and well, you need to pray. But I can tell you what God's going to answer to your prayer. Do something about it. Moses, the staff is in your hand. What are you going to do? I'm getting somewhere out. I'm sorry, I'm building up to hopefully something that makes more sense. You see, every time we preach, it has to be all-inclusive. There cannot be a single message that we preach that does not allow every single hearer of that word to be included in that sermon. That means that when we start preaching about we have to get out there on the streets at 8 o'clock at night and lay hands on every sick person we find, well, a single, and otherwise we're not doing the works of God. I've heard that kind of sermon before. Evangelists tend to love to preach that sermon, especially the guys that get hyped up about um, healing and deliverance. And fair, fair enough, I, I, I champion them going. But what about a single mother who has two kids and she works two jobs and she has to drop them at school, go to her first job, go to her second job, pick them up, go home, feed them, close them, make, clothe them, make sure they're in bed, make sure they're looked after. Where does she get the time to be included in that message? So it has to be inclusive. I just want to I actually just feel to lift that kind of condemnation right off of people. Just just right off of you. That is not if a person has the ability to do that and that is the call of God in their life, they must be released to do that. But I can tell you right now, a single mother who raises her kids well in God's ways, that is as much the ministry as them going out and seeing five hundred people healed. Now, the, the message of the gospel must bring liberation. It must never put you in a place where you feel condemned, guilty, or, una, or un, unable to attain to what you believe, what you've been made to believe God wants you to do. So our sharing the message moves from pulpit preaching now, because that's only what some of us do. It actually moves away from tent crusades. It, it moves away from handing out tracts, and it moves away from standing on soapboxes, picketing outside abortion clinics, and standing in the march against same-sex marriage. So to throw that one in there. Um, preaching moves away from that. That, that there is, is, is not the way that God has ordained for all of us to present Him. The ministry style of Jesus now becomes our model. And it's, it's quite incredible to watch Jesus... When he, when you see him through the, through the, the 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 four counts of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you look at Jesus and you you see his ministry style, it is so different to what we see the Western Church doing. Do you want to just pop up the, that slide? I just want to jump across here quickly. There's three types of. This is more of an apostolic style message. It's not a teaching message. It's not a prophetic message. It's not a pastoral message. It's more apostolic. It's, it's, it's somehow trying to find, and it's, we're not, we're not, we're not going to figure it out today, but it's trying to find out what does God want from us here? So let me ask you this question quickly. Well, let me make this statement and then ask, and, and in the form of, well, let me make, ask the question in the form of a statement. Ezekiel, not Ezekiel, sorry, Elijah, Elijah goes into a cave. And he's in this cave. Everyone knows the story about Elijah in the cave. Now God comes to Elijah and he asks him this question. Elijah, what are you doing here? It's an interesting question because God could have asked him the question which most churches ask the question of themselves. Elijah, why are you here? So if I ask the question of community church, community church, why are you here? We can, you can give me all the religious responses you want to However, the response that you give me to the question of why are you here comes with no responsibility on your part. Well, why are you here? Well, you're here to worship God. Okay? We're here to bring the kingdom. Fantastic. We're here to preach the gospel. Yeah. We're here to serve the poor. Fantastic. But that's, there's no responsibility. You can give me the answer to the question of why without doing anything. But now let me ask the question a different way. Community church, what are you doing here? Now you need to answer me with honesty. And your answer better be backed up by what it is you actually are doing. Because it's no longer a theory. It's now actually a reality. What are you doing here? Are we here, uh, you know, helping the sick? Okay, well, show me. Oh, well, um, we don't really pray for people. Okay, well, that's fine. What are you doing here? Well, we're helping the poor. We had to, we had to see the poor, you know, come into, you know, 
be taken off the streets. Okay, we're shaming. Now, we can in that sense because we have set free care, which actually does do that. What are you doing here? Well, we, we bring in the kingdom. Well, show me. See, now there's a response. There's a responsibility to your response. So we ask the same question. Community church, what are you doing here? The question no longer is why. We all know why we're supposed to be here. But the question is now, what are you doing here? And we've got to decipher what is our purpose as a local church in the community? Because we're not going to be one church up the road. We're not going to be Glow. We're not going to be Hillsong. We're not going to be Generations. We're not going to be, give me all the different names that you can have to think of. New Life Uniting Church. We're not going to be that. We're not going to be Metro. We're not going to be Surf City. We're going to be community with an identity. As we heard, the disciples all had an individual identity. Every one of them were different. And God used each one of them in a different way for the same purpose. Community church, that's exactly what God wants to use us for. However, this year is something that we need to take a look at. Number one, these are the three areas of Western uh, churchianity. Let me put it that way. Western Christianity. Separatists. This is more your traditional style of church. The extreme of this would be the Amish. Uh, no, no word of lie. That's what they'll be. Some people who, who remove themselves to try to protect themselves. Well, there's all this debauchery around us. The culture has gone to who? It's all over the place. And we're afraid that that's going to infest us. So we remove ourselves from that culture to protect ourselves from the culture. Because we don't want their sin to infect us. Well, that's fear-based, number one, because their sin shouldn't be able to infect you. However, when you separate yourself from society, you have no ability to reach society. So what we do is this. We, the, our way of reaching society is praying and asking God to bring people into our society, into our little community. Come to our stuff. But the reality is, in Western society, if you haven't seen it, the unsafe people are not coming to our stuff. How many of you in this building today, and you know, be, be honest, are actually born again Christians who got invited here or heard about us through online or another Christian that's in this church. Just put your hands up. So the rest of you are unsaved. I just asked the question, who of you are born-again Christians? That hopelessly failed. If you look around, most of you are Christians. So we can put on an event, a Sunday event, but people are not going to just come wandering in, you know, some unsaved people, which can happen. God can do whatever he wants to do. But if you look around you, majority of the time, people are not just wandering in here. Oh, I just thought I'd wake up this morning and come to church. You know what I mean? Never been to church in my life before. I felt this is a great place. Drove past you the other week and heard some, some sounds. I thought I'll just pop in. That, that generally is not happening. They're very rarely. We've seen it happen, and, and, and it's miraculous when it does happen, but that's generally not the case. The second group of people are culturalists. These people are, are those who mimic the culture to fit in. This is, this is, this is predominantly your seeker sensitive church. If we mimic the culture, we all hip and happening like everybody else, people are going to come in. The only problem is, is that MTV and Disney are outdoing you because they've got bigger budgets. Okay? So you can, you can mimic the culture all you want to, but the moment you try to challenge, if you've created a church environment, that is there to become culturally relevant by mimicking the culture. The moment you challenge that culture, those people are part of the crowd and they will walk straight out your door. Because they were sold a bill of goods. And we thought you were like this. That's what we were told. I actually listened to a video. Uh, uh, you know these, I'm not going to tell you the name of the church. They, they, were, they were a well-known church on the Gold Coast. But they ended up closing their doors. Surprise, surprise. But I listened to their... What is that thing called? Vision Sunday. The Vision Sunday was presented by four or five different people from different departments in the church. Quite a large church. And um, I remember watching. I thought, oh, let me see what other people are talking about. Let's see what, what's God doing on the Gold Coast. So I watched a few churches' Vision Sunday videos. And on this video, this guy got up, the, the church guy who was, in, listen to his ministry. He was the director of entertainment. Number one. Red flag for me. Director of entertainment in the church. Fair enough. The bloke got up. I thought I'll give him, give him, I'll give him his five minute talk. This is what he said as his opening line. He says, my job here is to make sure that we create an environment in the church 
where you don't feel embarrassed to bring your friends and family in here because we're going to create an environment that's suitable to them. And he said, what we got planned is these things like little flash mobs that will stand up in the meeting and do this and prize giveaways on, on certain days when you bring... I just went from... In that video right now. Culturalists. Those kind of Christians, when you look at them, you wouldn't know they were Christians. You wouldn't know, let me not even say the word Christians, because that word is so loosely used. They would not see Jesus. They wouldn't understand Jesus if they spent a year with that person. They wouldn't, under, they wouldn't even know who Jesus is. Okay. The third type is the restorer. And the perfect model of the restorer is Jesus. And this is someone who engages the culture to redeem the culture. Now, Jesus had no problem was stepping into the culture, be it its brokenness or its glories, and engaging it where it was at to bring a restoration to people right where they were at. That is what I believe the Western church is meant to be. That's what I believe every church is meant to be. It's meant to fit into the category of restorer. To go in, we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to go in and to engage with people where they're at, not to convert them, but to bring redemption to them. Do you, understand, do you understand what I'm saying? We are not called to convert people. We are called to bring redemption to people. We are called to bring redemption to society. There's nowhere that Jesus didn't go that he didn't create a stir, both in a positive and a negative way. And I can tell you now, if we step into what God wants, among the religious sect of our city, we will create a negative stir. In Dubai, when God poured out a spirit upon Well of Life Church, we created both a positive and a negative stir. The negative stir came from the churches because signs, wonders, and miracles began to manifest. And churches didn't like that, funny enough. Uh, um, that's, that, in my mind, I don't understand that. The very one we wanted, but doesn't that sound like the Pharisees? The very one we have waited for, the one that our prophets have prophesied about for, for, for centuries, for generations, now arrives. But because he does not fit into the box of what we think he should look like, because he was supposed to come as a high priest Pharisee, um, what we're going to do is we're going to reject him to the point of killing him. So that's what happened to us. He has this motley crew of people that are made up of different types of people who, who, who by any religious senses should not be doing what they're doing, are watching God move in a Middle Eastern country. And guess what happened? Muslims would come in and get filled with the power of God. Unsaved people were getting healed born again. I remember seeing a woman run down while Mark was standing on the stage preaching. She ran. It was a massive big auditorium. And for some, we, we just made an auditorium. So it was big seating. There, you fit, I don't know, 700 people in there. And, and Mark was on the stage on the bottom. This woman came out, ran down the stairs while he was preaching on Jesus, grabbed his ankles while he was preaching and was weeping and saying, please, please lead me to Jesus right now in front of a full crowd of people. That kind of conviction, is that's the first time I've seen that kind of conviction. I've never seen that before. I remember laying my hands on a person, on, on this bloke, and, and, and prophesying over him. I've never met him in my life before. Stuff that was true. The next minute, he just fell on the floor. So I went, oh, that's fantastic. Carried on going to pray. And then Mark's wife, Charmaine, came and said to me, she goes, I don't think that guy's actually born again. I don't think he even knows Jesus. So I went there, and I said to him, mate, are you, do you know Jesus? Are you, are you a Christian? He went, he says, no, I'm not a Christian. I don't know Jesus. I, I, I came here because I'm visiting my family from abroad, and, I, and they brought me to church this morning, and I, came, I just felt to come forward for prayer. What, what, what? That's, that should be normal. I remember praying for a Muslim guy. He was from, he was from Iran, and uh, he came to the meeting, and, and, he, and he's, he's sitting in the meeting, and um, after the meeting, he comes to me. I, I preached. I preached on, 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 on the cross. And um, afterwards he comes and he says this to me, he goes, I want to talk to you. And you know, when, when you meet an Arab, <laughs> it's, they, they're very abrupt, more abrupt than South Africans. So I was a little bit afraid. He's like, I want to talk to you. I was like, come here. And I called two friends, come with me. I called Barsi and, and, and another friend, Tracy. And we st stood there and I said, okay, how can I help you? He goes, uh, what you said, I believe. I believe that that man, Jesus, came from heaven, that he died on that cross for my sins and he was raised back to life again. Now, what must I do to be saved? And I said, you just got saved. He says, okay, what's next? I said, well, we want to get filled by the Holy Spirit. He goes, what's that? So now we spoke to him about the Holy Spirit. He goes, I want that. 
I remember I laid my hands on him and he just hit the floor. Just bang, on the floor like that. So that's incredible. Then he got up and he went, what's next? And I said, now you're going to get baptized in water. That day we took him down to the Arabian Gulf and we baptized in water. And his response to that was this. This is exactly what he said. He goes, I feel this joy inside of me, but I can't explain what it feels like. But it's this joy that I want all the time. I said, the Bible says that that is inexpressible joy. I mean, I literally watched what we see in Scripture outplayed. The next week, this guy brought another friend to me. After the meeting, everyone's having tea and coffee and, and talking and everything. And he brings this guy up to me and he says, due to this guy, what you did to me last week, when you put your hand on me, I, I fell down. So I went, okay, no problem. And the guy's standing there and, and, and he's just looking at us. I said to him, okay. And he puts his hands up because the guy says to me, he goes, put, put your hands up. So I went, okay. So he puts his hands up. I just laid my hands on his head like that. And he just hit the floor. And then he brought another friend. He says also to him. I laid my hands on him and he hit the floor. And those guys joined my home group. Then I had a Muslim from Iran as well. Another Muslim from Iran. His name, uh, I won't mention his name. Anyway, he, he, he joined my home group, but he remained a Muslim. But he came to church every Friday because we, our Fridays are like our Sundays. You have a Friday and Saturday as your, as your two days. So we thought, well, we'll have church on Fridays. But this guy joined my home group, became a, an integral part. He, he, he integrated in and he stayed in that home group for one year. One whole year before I had to move away. And he's still involved in that community today. He's never converted to Christianity. He's never given his life to Jesus. But he's remained in there, and he loves being a part of us. And when we pray for people, he prays as well. And he prays in the name of Jesus when we say, in Jesus' name, he goes, in Jesus' name. Now, you explain that to me. For anyone in, 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 reform, in reform circles, they, they would be frustrated. My job would be to convert that guy. My job was not to convert him. My job was to be Jesus among him. And he saw a community of people that looked like Jesus. And he decided to be a part of it. Now, now, now he'll say things to me like, God bless you. He doesn't use the word Allah anymore. But whether he gets saved, I don't know. My job was only to be someone who was Jesus to him. Why I share that, I don't know. Because I think that that's what's going to happen here. I think we're going to see that. In this church, I believe God's got that purpose for us here. Billy Graham said this. He had a conversation with an author and a, and a, and a Christian speaker whose name is Gabe Leon. Gabe Leon. L-Y-O-N-E. And Billy Graham said this in his, in, in these, in his age, in, in his old age. He said this. He said, that in the past we, we did large crusades and we had big church meetings where God was using and moving in those meetings. But in these days, I believe that God's not going to do that anymore. I believe that God's going to do something else. That's what Billy Graham said. Michael Metzger said this, When confronted with corruption of our world, Christians ought to be provoked to engage and not offended and withdraw. Isn't that not offended and withdraw? The culture of our age... Surprise, surprise, it is not the culture of heaven. So why are you offended by it? I do not ever see Jesus get offended by the culture of the world around him. The only time I see Jesus get upset is when he is confronted with a religious system that keeps the un, those who are unclean out of God's presence, which is in the temple. That's the only time I actually see him provoked in anger. Every other time to the brokenness of people, he was provoked in compassion and love. And even when he came down towards Jerusalem, he wept over the city. He wept over Jerusalem because they refused to accept what God was doing among them. To live as restorers of the planet, it starts with rediscovering the gospel, which I'm hoping to do next year, which leads to recalibrating our conscience, to allow, to allow our consciences to be in the world, but not of the world which forces us then to rethink our commitment to one another and to our neighbors, which inspires us to then begin to reimagine what church should look like. The beauty of it, the creativity of it. Something that I don't believe the world has seen for many, many generations. And this will also culminate in a redeployment of the church to where I believe that the world needs her the most and where God actually intended us to be. 
Your deployment into those places where God's put you, into your spheres of influence, is, I believe, what God wants us to do. He wants you to be Him there. In order to do that, we need to have some characteristics. And I'll end with these six. We need to be provoked, but not offended. That means that when we see something not right, it provokes us, but it doesn't offend us. It provokes us not in a reaction, but it provokes us to a response. Because we, the, we are so used to reacting. The world reacts to everything, reacts, reacts to everything around it. Jesus never reacted to anything ever. He just responded. And maturity is response. When you respond, it shows maturity. When you react, it's actually immaturity. Oh, well, I can't believe they did that now. They passed that vote. Time out. Let's rather respond to it. And our response will look very different to our reaction. I remember I said to you that word that God gave me while we were worshiping. Don't be upset about what's going to happen. What you need to understand is this, a wonderful country of Australia. I come from a country that fell to pieces. I come from a, nation, a, a, a continent that fell to pieces. What you need to understand, living in your nanny state, is that in order for things to happen in the kingdom, the world needs to fall apart around you. That means that your wonderful Australian culture of security and safety actually needs to be shaken up so that it provokes us to a response. The world will only turn to Jesus when they realize just how much in the mess they actually are. And America is going down that road. Just watch them. They're running, running, running. They've got to the point where their whole American dream has fallen apart. And they are scrambling, fighting internally. But it's the perfect atmosphere for the gospel. Australia, we have sat for a very, in a very safe, nanny, looked after. You don't need to think because the government will think for you and they'll tell you what to do and you just follow what they do. And even though you hate it, you still do. All of that wonderful Australian culture needs to be shaken up so that it becomes a wonderful atmosphere, like a greenhouse for the gospel. Because people that don't, people that are doing okay don't think they need Jesus. And so, so I think that the step, God allows us, let me put it this way, God didn't orchestrate that pass of that vote. God allowed us, the Australian people, to make our own decisions without him. That's what God does. You make your decision without me. And then when you call out to me, you look, go read the Old Testament. Do what you want to do. If you do this, this will happen. If you do this, this will happen. What do you want to do? Oh, we want to do this. No worries. Uh Uh-oh, we're in trouble. We've been plundered. Nations have taken us over. We don't know what's going on. We're now slaves. Our land is not producing fruit anymore. Our women are barren. They're being raped and murdered. Our sons are marrying other people. What do we do? Help us, God. Boom, he steps in every time, redeems them, restores them. Everything's going well. And guess what they do? They go straight back to where they were again. And eventually when they go, help us, God, every time they called out to God, bang, he steps in. Australia's on that road. America's on that road now where suddenly they're going, help help us. Help, help us, God. And they're not quite there yet, but we're on that road. We're following behind. Before you know it, Australia will get to help us, God. And God will step in. Mark my words, that's exactly what God's going to do. The prophetic words he's had over this nation are that we are going to be a powerhouse, a fire into Southeast Asia and the Pacific Rim. I don't see that yet. It's not going to come through apostolic missions or mission trips that we plan and run off to all the islands in the South Pacific. It's not going to happen through that. It's going to happen when God arrives. And God's going to arrive when the hunger of his people is so great that he cannot contain holding himself back any further but to step in. And God knows the timing is perfect. He, 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 he's never early and he's never late. Where is it? God's in the 11th hour. No, he's not. He's perfectly on time. Whatever that is, we don't know. We like to say the 11th hour because it sounds good. But God will come when God knows the time is right. But the hunger of people, a small community called our community church, our hunger can rise so much that it puts a demand on heaven that God comes into this little church. That's what happened in Dubai. He came into a little church of about 350 people. We were one of the smallest churches in Dubai. And that church grew to 750 people in two years. In a, and, and more than 50% of that growth was fresh, born-again people who had never met Jesus, ever, from every single culture in this world. 
What an incredible opportunity. And some of those people have now gone back to their countries, joined churches, planted churches, started ministries. Creators, not critics. So rather than sitting around criticizing what's happening around us, we begin to create ways in which we can reach them with the gospel. We need to be called, not employed. That means that we are all volunteers. Friends, all volunteers. Not the employed people are the ones that do the work in the church. But everybody is a part of this family. Grounded and not distracted. That means we need to have a purpose and not be distracted. Good ideas achieve nothing. But God ideas will achieve his purposes. And we've got a lot of Christians out there who have good ideas for ministry. Great ideas for ministry. And when you hear them present, you go, that's actually a good idea. But I don't feel that's what God wants for us right now. What I feel God wants is he wants us to do this. Oh, well, you don't want to start. I'll go to another church where they, where they will start a ministry that I can join whenever I want to. I remember someone came to me once and said, do you, we, want to, we feel we need to do this. I said, that's great. Why don't you start that and run with it? Oh, no, I don't want to do that. I said, what you want me to do is that, as the leader of, of the church is you want me to start the ministry that when you choose to come to that ministry once every six weeks, you can come along and serve the poor or go on the streets and preach. But every other week, I'm the poor one who's left my family at home to go and drive this thing with another bloke behind me and you'll just pop in whenever you feel like it. I said, he who has the vision, off you go. And I'll come every six weeks. Do you know what they did? They left the church and their response to me in doing that was this. I'm going to go join that church because they've got that ministry. I said, see you later. Tap on the bum, out you go. I don't, I don't, I don't need to run and try and do that. It's, we, what is our calling? And let's follow that. And, and you know what? One step at a time. Have you seen when you draw those pictures on the dots? And when you get to dot number five, what, and there's no other dot that you can see because God just puts the dots when he wants them. Sometimes he gives you five. One, two, five. Oh, I can see where we're going with this. Oh, six, seven, eight. There's no ten. And we go, oh, we'll draw a duck. And then later on, all the dots come and you go, hang on a minute. And God says, I wanted a cow. But what you did is you got to, well, we need to keep moving. We need to keep being a church. What you learn to do is what they did in the book of Acts. Wait till I come. We'll wait. But we don't wait by sitting there watching TV. We wait actively by worshiping and praising and teaching and being together and doing this. And then suddenly God breaks in. Boom. All the other dots start filling together. Two more points. We need to be in community and not alone. I'll say that again. Generate a response of amen to that one. You need to be in community and not alone. Now I'll tell you this. I'm cautious of all ministries that are not part of a church. You can be the greatest evangelist on earth. If you're not part of a local house where you are being looked after, cared for, adding value to, have a, have a, have a mother, fa- spiritual mother and father, let me tell you something. You're probably not going to add value to this church. Oh, well, I can preach a great message. I don't care. We're not looking for great, great preachers. We're looking for people that belong to something who, when they go out, will bring people back into something. You may be a great apostle. Be from a house. Paul, sorry, Paul and Barnabas were part of Antioch and went on a long journey for three years, three years, and then came back to Antioch, their home base, and gave a report of what God had done. Now, they couldn't fly on airplanes or drive in their car. So the three-year journey was, you know, they went around, came back, told what had happened, and then remained in that house encouraging all the people while other people taught and preached. And then they decided, let's go back again and visit all those churches. And so they went on another journey. And then the other one is we need to be counter-cultural, not culturally relevant. Counter-cultural, not culturally relevant. Because if you're counter-cultural, you're a restorer. But remember... We're meant to be creators, not critics. I mentioned that. So in your counterculturalism, do not be critical. Be creative. That's the end of my notes. Let me just end there. I was going to read you a final scripture, but you can go and read it. If you want to write this down, go and read Ezekiel chapter 36 from verse 1 to verse 38. What you'll read in that scripture is how God speaks about his people Israel being, a, being scorned by all the nations around them and him coming in to say, no more will that happen. No more will you be desolate and barren. What you will be is you'll be fruitful. 
and people will come and be drawn to you and you will produce fruit and your land will give forward fruit and people will look at you in the nations and say, look how great God has created these people to be. That's paraphrasing that text. I believe that that is what God's going to do for the Western church. Because if you look around you, we are scorned by the world around us. But God's going to change that shift to where people are going to go, you are blessed. We want to be around you. We want to be part of you. Just like Jesus. People wanted to be around him. They wanted to be a part of him. They wanted to follow him because he was restoring their brokenness and not rejecting them, pushing them away. He was drawing them into his life and into God's. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be called by you as a community to establish your ways, your love, your character, your nature, your kingdom, everything that there is to know about you, to be about you, to be part of you, that you've called us to be those who restore what is broken, what is lost, what is missing around us. Even where we see the successes within the world, Within that, Lord, we can still bring about a, a, a more positive change where men have done things in their own strength and they've attained you know, 50% of the goal. When we come around and do it in your strength, we can attain 100%. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to understand that this is, that this is part of the journey. We, we haven't arrived yet. We, we, are, we are exploring what do you want Community Church to be in this nation of Australia in the city of the Gold Coast, and in the nations of the world as we go out apostolically. Help us to understand what our purpose will be. Help us to understand if we will be the hand or the feet or the mouth or the, or the shoulders or the, the heart or whatever it may be. Help us to understand who we will be and help us to be able to answer this question. What are you doing here? And we can answer that question with confidence. We can answer that question knowing that we are, we are seeing those things happen already. We ask, Lord, that you would begin to expose us more and more to your manifest presence, not on our Sunday services alone, but your manifest presence in every area of our lives, be it at home, be it in the workplace, be it while we're hanging out around a barbecue, or be it here on a Sunday morning. Whatever it is that we're doing, Lord, we want to be exposed to your presence. We want to put a demand on heaven and ask that you would break in to this little community, and, and reveal your nature, not only to us, but reveal your nature in us. We ask this in the name and the authority that comes with the name of Jesus, the Messiah King. Amen. Thank you very much for listening patiently.